Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Well, welcome to you to Foothills Christian Church. I'm so glad that you are here today for our second installment on Hashtag Blessed. It is a study of the book of Philippians. It's about being blessed even when you're stressed. Therefore, it's all about the study of joy. So that's what it's about. Hashtag blessed, even when you're stressed. Now, people who are learning joy and they learn uh, how to find this joy are some of the most resilient people, courageous people, confident people, regardless of what's happening in their lives. Uh, Paul is the one who exemplified this because this is a study of his letter to the people living in Philippi. And what he does is he explains how you could be blessed no matter what. So please read this book over and over again throughout this entire series, because I think you're going to really be blessed by it, pun intended. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about attitude, and we're going to be on chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you downloaded the phone app, whether you are doing church at home, or you're watching this at a later time, or you're here in the auditorium, please download the phone app, and you can get all of the message notes that follow along all the fill in the blanks, all the scriptures, everything that you're going to need. Also, if you're doing church at home and you're watching uh, on YouTube uh, or Facebook, if you're on Facebook, over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, click the bell. And what it does is it really helps more people find when they're searching. It makes it much more easy. So we're around 700 subscribers. We'd like to get over a thousand by the end of the year. We'd love for you to help out. Now, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. And before uh, uh, we dig in, I want to show you the key verse on which all the verses in this section kind of hinge upon, okay? And it's found in verse 5. And verse 5 says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the New American Standard Bible uh, translation. It's very close to the NIV. However, the NIV, which is New International Version, uh, translates this word as mindset. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second, okay? So, this is all about attitude today. And last week, we started to talk about the baseline in your life of where joy actually comes from. So I have a little graphic today. I really upped my game, drew it out here. I'm just not doing it with my hands this week. We, we actually have a graphic, see? Now, it's not a moving graphic. Maybe next week, we'll really get going, and it might be a moving graphic, but I make no promises, okay? Now, what this is, is that most people have a baseline attitude, right? And this is just kind of your normal, everyday disposition about life. And what happens is most of us go, boy, I wish I would be happy. And so we focus on things that make us happy, but actually what they do is they influence our mood. And so let's say somebody wins a lottery, right? Well, for a few weeks, what are they? Super happy. But then six months later, what happens is they actually regress back to their standard baseline or their 
attitude, their disposition about life. And then something bad happens. They, they lose a loved one or a job gets, uh, goes you know, gets lost because the company shuts down or whatever. They feel really, really bad, right? But then their mood will regress eventually back to their baseline. And what Paul calls, or what, what psychologists call your baseline, Paul calls your attitude. And in the first chapter last week, Paul said that once you define your exist, reason for existence, then you can form a healthy attitude, an attitude that actually goes higher, more towards joy. Now, here's how it kind of works out. And that is your attitude is, psychologists say, is a psychological construct in which you interpret all of reality around you. I know it's a little abstract, but it's basically like this. It's like a pair of glasses, right? And instead of just helping your eyes, your attitude interprets all the data around you in a certain way. So if you get up in the morning and it's raining, it's your attitude that tells you whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day. It is your attitude that tells you when you're talking to your wife before you go out the door and she says, don't forget to call your mom or make a doctor's appointment or stop at the store. Da, da, da. It's your attitude that tells you how to interpret that, right? It is your attitude when your boss talks to you in one way or another that tells you how to interpret it. And here's what's so fascinating about your attitude is that your attitude tells you how to interpret the data but then the data you get reinforces your attitude, right? So if you allowed your mood, when this happens, to impact your attitude, right? What it will do over time is every time something bad happens, it just goes, your attitude, your baseline gets what? Lower and lower and lower, see? If you only focus on good things, that's kind of Pollyanna, that doesn't really pull your baseline up. And so the real issue is that your baseline can change, and Paul teaches us how to do it. In verses 1 through 11, Paul teaches us the way in which this thing can go more towards joy, so that when good things happen, your, your mood is great, but when it regresses, it comes back to a place of joy instead of someplace neutral. And that's what Paul teaches us how to do. He gives us three steps in this passage of scripture, okay? Beginning in verse one, the first thing he does is he tells us that you have to set your goal to raise your baseline, okay? Another way to say, way to say it is vision casting. Look at what he says in verse one and two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, a couple things about this I want you to note. The word therefore. This means that everything taught in chapter one, right, is, is the foundation for what he's about ready to tell you. What did he say in chapter one last week is that you must define your ex reason for existence and that is found in Jesus Christ, okay? He says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And his whole point is, if I go on living, I'm serving the Lord, that's a win. If I die and I go be with Jesus, that's a win. So that's his reason for existence. 
is in Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus. So he says, because of that, if you are united with Christ, see, he talks about those who've been united with him. He goes, if you're encouraged by that, if you're comforted by that, if you experience love, or even if you have a common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion, these are all really good things, right? He says, then make my joy complete. So notice how he ties it to joy. So he goes, there's something I can do to increase my joy. It incre- Paul says it will make his joy, his goal for my life uh, come to fruition. And that is, I must be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So have you heard that old adage that you can do anything if you set your mind to it? Well, all I can tell you is I've set my mind to a lot of things and they never happened right? They just never happened, you know. I, I, had, I did have a goal when I was uh, 48 years old that when I was 50, I wanted to have a six-pack ab. I'm still working on that. I have a two-pack. Well, that's as far as I got. So not everything I've set my mind to comes to fruition. However, what if someone had set their mind to change their attitude and they were united with Christ and their goal was a goal that Jesus had for their life, that they have a complete joy. Now it's not just me setting my mind to it. The power of the Holy Spirit is now working in me towards the same goal. You know why most people don't find joy? The reason why is the goal they have is to change their moods. You remember the graph that I had earlier? What they want is, boy, if, if more things changed my happy mood, then maybe I'll be more happy. But guess what? That never works because you always regress to your baseline. But if you set a goal to change your attitude baseline towards joy, then what you'll find is the Holy Spirit working in you to bring about a greater joy about life. That's why it is so important to set your goal. Then the second thing that Paul teaches is found in verse three, and that is you must examine yourself. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you can go to a trainer and a trainer is gonna say, hey, I can make you stronger, but if you don't take their nutritional advice, you're never gonna get in better shape. You may be stronger and that makes you feel better when you carry around that existing weight, but it's not ever gonna go anywhere until you control what you eat. A professor can explain to you the concepts in your course, but if you don't study them and internalize them, you you probably won't pass the test, and it's not going to make any difference in your growth. A pastor can share with you what the Bible teaches and how God works through the scripture to improve your life, but it's up to you because it's your faith to take those principles and adapt them. It's the steps that you take in your faith that end up growing your faith. So the most important thing to do is listen to these words and then say, I'm going to examine how to apply them to my life. It doesn't do you any good to say, uh, I wish my spouse was this way. It, it helps you when you examine yourself. Be honest with yourself. And I think you'll find a way to see your baseline joy grow. Notice what he starts off by saying in verse three. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, when he says this, he makes two assumptions. The first assumption is, is that we have a choice because he's saying, do nothing. 
So you get to choose whether you're going to be selfish or conceited. You get to choose. The second thing he says in writing this to everybody is this. We all at times are selfish and conceited. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. But guess what? What he's saying is examine yourself to see if, because you have the potential to do that, if you are acting selfishly or if you are acting conceited. He says it's very important to evaluate yourself. Examine yourself and set a goal. Set a goal to eradicate all selfishness from your life. Now look what he does when he goes on in verse three and four. He goes, rather, this is a very important, this is a very important uh, word here because he's transitioning. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get you to understand that restrictive proscription never works. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, I call this a chocolate cake test or the chocolate chip cookie t- taste test or the peanut butter cookie test, whatever you want to call it. Take a piece of cake or cookies or whatever and put them on a plate in the center of the table in your, living, your dining room or your kitchen, all right? And then walk by and say, I'm not going to eat that cookie. Walk by, I'm not going to eat that cake. How long until you eat the cake? Yeah, after about the third sentence, right? The gallon of milk is out and you're going to town. And the reason why is because if you just try to tell yourself not to do something, you can easily end up what? Doing it. You have to replace it with something else. You have to replace. And this is what Paul is saying in your psychological construct, your mental attitude is you have to replace. And the way you replace is you act in humility. He says, rather do this. Rather think this way. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, when you replace selfish ambition and vain conceit with humility, you are going to create a good attitude in your life because it opens you up to blessing. When you have humility in your life, it opens you up to joy. It increases your joy because when you're humble, you're opening yourself up to gratitude. This is very important. For instance, uh, let's just say for a second, hypothetically, you've been married, all right? And you're thinking to yourself, my life would be so much easier if I could just get my husband to put his dirty clothes in the clothes hamper in the closet instead of throwing them on the floor. He's driving me crazy, right? So then one day, for some reason, he picks up all of his clothes. He throws them in the clothes hamper. He goes downstairs and he fires up the washing machine, right? Now, if in, you're acting in humility, you know, that you might think to yourself, wow, this is awesome. Thank you, husband, for finally getting this. It only took 32 years, but I'm so happy, right? You're going to be so joyful. But does it ever really work that way? Usually it's like this. It's like, well, it's about time. (laughs) Now, when are you going to get to lowering the lid on the toilet seat? Let's work on that now. You see, what you do is you take all the margin out, don't you? So you're not gracious at all. And so there's no joy and your baseline doesn't go up. It actually kind of goes down, doesn't it? Because your expectation is one towards negativity instead of 
joy. So when you replace it with humility, humility opens up blessing into your life because your baseline of joy goes up. Now, it's very important to understand what humility is. Humility is not a devaluation of yourself. Humility is not putting yourself down, deprecating yourself, or considering yourself worthless. It is not that at all. Humility is simply a conscious decision to raise others up around you. C.S. Lewis has a great way of saying it that I like a lot. Here's what he says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See, it's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. When Jesus talks about the golden rule, he's, a, he's making this assumption. And that is, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So I know people who think so poorly of themselves and their internal dialogue is so negative. I'm like, please don't treat other people the way you treat yourself because that would be unhealthy. So this assumption is very important. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And that's critical. Now, so the first step, right, is to set a goal. Paul says the second goal is to examine yourself. And then the third goal is something that people who've been united with Christ, people who found their reason for existence in him, it allows them to draw on the power of Jesus to raise their happiness or their attitudinal baseline. Look at what he says in verse five. In your relationships with one another, now this is the NIV, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, why do they translate attitude mindset? Because as I shared earlier, psychologists call, call it a psychological, a mental construct through which you bring all data in. So set your mindset. So if, if it, that's what it's doing up here, then up here is where I change my attitude. Now, I want you to know something about these verses I'm about ready to read, and that is this. They are some of the most powerful, foundational, orthodox scriptures dealing with the nature of Jesus. And so theologians love this passage of scripture because what it does is it talks about the nature of Jesus, all right? Now, the, the thing about it, though, is that sometimes you miss the simplicity of what it has to say to the average follower of Christ. And you know what he says? He says this. He says, in your what? Relationships. Just in your relationships have the same mindset as Christ. This is the attitude to have when it comes to the people you are in relationship with, the people close to you. If you're married, it's your spouse. If you have kids, if you have parents, if you have neighbors, close friends, a small group in your church, whatever it may be, it is an attitude of the mind and it's something that you can consciously choose to do. So it's very important to understand now all uh, what he says next in verse six. So he says, let's do what Jesus, uh, ha have this attitude that Jesus has. And what is the attitude? Verse six says, who being in the very nature God. So he is one, he and God are one, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Okay, so what's he saying now? Well, what's he saying is that Jesus and God were one, 
But Jesus said, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to retain my power and authority, but I'm going to let go of it because I need to do something to save humanity. Now, one of the reasons why you and I struggle in relationships is because when you're in a relationship with someone, you make yourself vulnerable. You kind of open yourself up, right? Let people get to know you. And what happens is when you're vulnerable, you're a lot easier it's, it is to get hurt. And so what happens is people get hurt when they're vulnerable. Now, when you are vulnerable and you get hurt, you have an emotional reflex to that. And you know what that emotional response is? You feel is you'll get defensive. You can't help it. You know, it's like, you know, when the doctor takes that, puts you on the seat and takes that little rubber hammer and hits you on the knee, what does your leg do? You know, it kind of goes boing. You're going, wow, that's fun. Um, so you have this emotional response when you're hurt, when you've opened yourself to be vulnerable. What happens is this, and this is what's really interesting about human beings, is when I'm hurt because of, I've opened myself to be, be vulnerable, what happens is it's a disempowered feeling, so then I want power. And so I try to I'll manipulate or do anything I can to gain an advantage. And this is where all the behaviors that hurt relationships come from. Some people subconsciously, you know what they do is they get mad and they yell. Other people get cold and withdraw. They won't respond. Other people will get depressed. Other people will get passive aggressive, you know? Say, how is everything? Fine. Okay, I don't think fine means what I think fine means when you say it that way. You know, people have all different kinds of responses. What are they doing? They're trying to, to not feel vulnerable and get hurt. Now, this is so common that's happening in our society because when you look at our society and you look at why people are so divided right now, why are people so upset? What's going on in the world today? Well, I'll tell you why. Is there was a social theory that was started in Frankfurt, Germany back in the early 1930s. And it was called the social, it was the Frankfurt School of Social Theory. And what it was is it was a group of people that felt like Karl Marx had a really great understanding of how social structures were built. However, they felt that his approach was much too rigid. And they thought, well, if we could free it from the rigidity that he had set up, uh, then what we'll do is we'll find a much greater uh, application of it. Now, this was about 25 years right after the Bolshevik Revolution in Soviet Russia, okay? So they were tracking this and watching it in real time. Well, the Nazis started to come to power, and the Nazis fought against communists, and that was one of the ways in which they were able to come to power. And so they saw the writing on the wall, and so in 1933, they left Germany, and they immigrated this group of intellectuals to America, and they all took root at Columbia University in New York City. And what has happened is their philosophy of social theory has taken root, and it is now the predominant social theory of every public university in the United States of America, and 90% of all private universities as well. It is out of this theory that you have all ethnic study programs, all gender study programs, you have all of these different types of uh, study programs. This is where 
you see today it has changed from the Frankfurt School of Social Theory into what is known as critical race theory. And it basically works like this, that every single person is not an individual, you're only part of a group. And the group you're a part of is determined by your outward appearance predominantly. Now, if that sounds strange, that's what the theory teaches. And because society is nothing but a bunch of groups vying for power, what it means is that every group has to identify with its group and then it has to fight for power. And this is why there is so much division and there's so much anger, demonization and hatred of Americans against other Americans today is because this theory is so destructive. Because what it does is it teaches you that everybody is against you. And the only way you survive is if you fight with everybody else. And your goal in life is to get more power. And the more power you have, the better you will be. But this is the opposite of what Paul is teaching in Philippians. He says we should have a different attitude, the very attitude of Jesus, which was what? Even though he had all the power of the universe, he didn't hold on to it. He didn't vie for it. What did he do? He let it go. He didn't try to use it for his advantage. Now look at what verse seven says. Rather, there's that word again, rather, he made himself nothing. So he let go of it all by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the human likeness. So he relinquished all that and became completely human while he was completely God at the same time. It's a paradox, hard to understand, but true. He said, and even as a human being, he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death and even death on a cross. So notice what Jesus did is he acted humbly. He said, the reason I came is because you needed me. The reason I came is to give my life as a ransom for you. And so I'm going to let go of my power in order that I can be obedient and humble myself for your benefit, for you. That's called sacrifice. Now look at what happens in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, because Jesus took this path, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Amen. As glory came to Jesus and as his name in heaven on earth was risen, so joy will come to you when you have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, your Lord. In your relationships, your life can become one of joy when you have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. The more you think like Jesus, the more you can act like Jesus. And the more you act like Jesus and think like him, then the more your baseline is going to go up, the more joy you're going to experience every day, the more you're going to live in a way that is uh, uh, healthy and filled with joy. You see, when you start being humble in the way your mind works, not putting yourself down, but raising others up and being concerned with your life changes. I met a woman 
about, oh, a year and a half ago. And the way she introduced it to herself was really, really interesting. And uh, I met her and I said, oh, I said, pleasure to meet you. Who are you? And she says, well, I'm in recovery from being uh, in a relationship with a narcissist. And I was like, well, okay, that's interesting. What do you mean? She goes, well, I dated this guy for six years, you know, three months in, he told me that we were going to get married. And then it never happened. It never happened. And it took me a while to realize that I had fallen in love with a narcissist. I'd fallen in love with a person that only cared about himself. That was it. And there was no, and so I had to recover from that because I gave and I gave and I gave and it almost killed me. And I was like, oh my goodness. You see, being around narcissistic people is what? A huge drain. And so if your baseline, you want it to go up, you got to figure out how can I not be a narcissist, right? How can I not be one? And if I'm not one, then I'll recognize the ones that are out there pretty quickly. You see, think like Jesus so you can act like Jesus and start living like Jesus. You know, humble people, people who have the mindset of Christ are some of the most courageous people that I have ever met in my life. You know, I was uh, uh, listening to uh, some stories of the Iraq war about five or six years ago, people that went over there and served, now they're out. And there was this gal who was telling her story and what she was, uh, she was driving in a convoy, right? And she had, she was driving a truck and there's a big thing, it got attacked. And two trucks up, there was a big IED blew the truck up, something like that. I can't quite remember exactly uh, what happened, but she basically was like, if I just stay here, I'm getting shot at, we're all gonna be in trouble. And so she veers off the course, goes down an alleyway, turns around, gets around and all the convoy behind her follows her, right? They all follow her and they all get back to base safely. And so uh, they were going to give her a medal for what she did for being decisive and doing all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting in the interview, they said, so, so do you feel like you were being courageous? And you know what she said? She said, no, I was just doing my job. Isn't that interesting? You know, when we look at firemen and firemen do these courageous things, you know, they'll run into a burning building and they'll save somebody. When we see police officers show up in these, these uh, uh, incredible situations and save people, it's fascinating. They always say the same thing because we look at that and go, wow, where did all that courage come from? And they always say, well, I was just doing what I was trained to do. And what were they trained to do? And this is what makes what they do so noble. They were trained to think of the needs of other people first. And they were trained to sacrifice their own safety in order to do what? Help someone else. That's why humble people are what? Courageous people. Humble people are some of the most committed people that you will ever know. These are people that when their marriages get tough, they stick with it and they work on it because they know I'm very concerned about the impact it's going to have, not just on me, but everybody else around me. They're very committed. When they find a healthy church, they stay in their church and they work through the ups and the downs. Why do they do that? Because they're concerned about how their decision-making influences all those around them. They're concerned about what their actions do. They don't live for them. They're not bound by them, but they take them into consideration. That's why they are very committed people. Humble people are some of the most honest people you'll ever meet. 
What do I mean by that? Well, they're very concerned with ideas. They're very concerned with how ideas impact people. They engage themselves. They try to figure out, well, exactly how does this ideology or this political approach or this this thing that they're teaching at this university, how do these things actually impact people? I want to know. And so they're honest. They're very honest because they're very concerned about the impact it has on other people, societies, and cultures. You know, humble people are some of the greatest builders that you'll ever know, especially uh, people who build companies. You know, I know some some men who and women who uh, have started companies, built companies. They're fascinating people. Not a single person I have ever met, read, or been introduced to has ever come across as, well, the reason I started a company is I want to be a billionaire so I can eat caviar for breakfast and go to the bathroom in a golden toilet bowl. It's, it doesn't work that way. You know what? Almost every single one of them is, was interested and cared about other people. And they said to themselves, you know, there's a problem and maybe I can build something that solves their problem. And then what they do is they build something and they're not so full of pride where they go, well, you better like what I built or tough. They go, well, how can I make it better? How can I change it? I want your input. Why? Because they're humble. They're humble people. So they build things. They create things that help other people. They like to build systems. People who are humble like to build context. People who like to, to, who are humble love to have uh, parties where their neighbors come over and build relationships. Why do they do this? Because they're concerned about the needs of others. That's why they're such great builders. You know, people who are humble are the most generous people that you'll ever meet. Uh, I can say safely that people who tithe are the happiest people on earth. Why? Because when you tithe, it cures selfishness and builds humility like that. You want to grow humility? Tithing is a steroid to grow your own humility. That's what it is. It just grows and lets you get outward focus instead of inward focus quickly. The other thing too is that humble people are the most relational people that you'll ever meet. Relationships are important to them because they're committed They're committed to seeing other people thrive. So friendships are important. Also, they're committed to a small group. They have a small group of people. Maybe they say, oh, this is our friend group. We have great friends. Or this is my small group at church. I'm really committed to it because it's a place where I get to practice humility. There's the principle of the five. They practice that. Everybody in some form or another has a list of four or five people that they say, I'm gonna love and care about and lift up and encourage during this pandemic. They love to mentor and disciple. Humble people love discipling others. A number of years ago, uh, I was uh, part of a church in Albuquerque where I was growing up. So it was quite a while ago. And I remember that in about 1975, 1976, there was this guy who wrote a book and it was called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. And the reason I remember it, because it was made into a little comic book, and I was into comic books at the time, and I read the comic book. And what it was is he was an Air Force pilot who was shot down over Vietnam, just like John McCain, and he was captured, and he was put in an interrogation camp, a prisoner of war, uh, 
imprisoned by the North Vietnamese. He was tortured and he was treated with great, uh, I mean, it was just tremendous, incredible abuse. And he wrote this book about how he survived. And in it, he talks about the fact, number one, is that it was Christian faith that allowed him to survive. And he said, the other thing is that the North Vietnamese tried to isolate us to break us, okay? And what they did is they put us in separate cells. They, they would not let us ever talk to each other. We couldn't even gather in the yard or eat meals together because they found out we would talk. And when we would talk, we would encourage one another. He says, so you know what we did? The one thing they couldn't take away from us is late at night at the time, they didn't know what Morris code was. So we would take our cups or we would just take rocks and we would tap on the walls, Morris code. And we started to communicate. He said, I started praying for people and encouraging people through Morse code in the middle of the night, just tapping out. He goes, the one thing they could never take away from us was our capacity to care for one another. My friends, it doesn't matter what happens with COVID. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't even matter how our government responds to it, how our governor or our mayor or whoever decides what's to do. The one thing that they can never influence, the one thing that they can never take away is our capacity to love and care and encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They can never take that away. They, they, we, we might have to adapt, we might have to change, but the one thing that can never be taken away from you is your attitude. Because it's yours and yours alone. And Paul is saying, now is your opportunity to grow an attitude of joy that no matter what happens out there, joy is always in here. So practice, practice humility in your life and watch your baseline attitude grow more and more towards joy. Now I'm asking you to help. This only takes a second before you leave today. Take out your phone and shoot a little video of yourself, a little selfie, answering a question for five seconds, and then submit it, okay? And the question I want you to answer when you take a selfie is this. What is the funniest thing you've seen during this pandemic? I mean, what is the funniest thing that you've seen? You know, just boop, record that and send it in through our phone app or our website. Or you can just email it to me. Either way, we'd love to have it. Don't forget our welcome party after this service for all of you who are brand new. We'd love for you to go to our welcome party and get to know a little bit more about Foothills. Let's listen to Dana as she closes us out. God's promises never fail. When he says he will sustain you in every circumstance, he will do it. Through Christ, our lives can be enriched by the blessings of love, joy, and peace. If you want the fulfillment that Jesus offers, decide today to choose him over everything else. Start by downloading our booklet, How to Connect to Jesus, or text FH Baptism to 97000 to be raised anew in Christ. Start a prayer journey by texting FH Prayer to 97000, or join a small group. Go to foothills.org groups and enter into a community of believers pursuing Jesus. If you don't see what you're looking for, consider starting a group of your own. Lastly, download the FH app onto your phone and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss out on the blessings of being in Christ's body. For, tho for those at home, go through the discussion questions and pray for the blessings of God to fulfill your heart. If you're with us at the building, please rise for a blessing from Pastor Doug. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org. 